and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, Episode 112, Victory in the North. Now that the Nationalists had halted the Republicans' attempts at securing the capital just to its west in the Battle of Brunette during July of 1937, Franco wanted to refocus on finishing off the North. So General Davila was ordered to form up his troops and prepare to move out. As we have seen, the Nationalists would attack with the following. Six Carlist brigades under General Sachoga, a large Italian force overall commanded by General Bastico, which was made up of Bergonzoli's Littorio Division, the March 23rd Division, the Black Flames, and the Black Arrows. In total, some 90,000 men. Flying over their heads, protecting them, would be just over 200 planes, made up of the Condor Legion, the Italian Air Force, and several Nationalist squadrons. The last would be flying more HE-51s than ever, as the Germans now had a large number of Messerschmitts. Opposing this regional invasion would be General Amir Ulibari and some 80,000 men. That was the relative good news. The bad news was that they would only be protected overhead by only some 40 fighters and bombers, all obsolete when compared to what the enemy had. But the battle that could have been fought never was. By early August, the men of the North felt hopeless in their defense. The numbers of those opposing them, their air power, and the number of guns more than negated knowledge of local terrain and that terrain's mountains. On August 14th, the Nationalists struck. Colonel Jose Solchaga's Carlists' brigades came from the east and ran into the waiting 54th Division. However, due to overwhelming artillery and air support, the clash quickly became a rout. The defenders pulled back as best they could, and as fast as they could. Clearly, Franco's nationalist troops were not going to be stopped here. Meanwhile, to the south of Santander, by some 30 miles, or 48 kilometers, on the northeast corner of the Ebro Reservoir, the Italians made for the Escudo Pass, the opening through the Catabrian Mountains. If this bottleneck was lost, then there would be almost nothing to stop the Italians from reaching up to the coast. Yet again, artillery and air power, nationalist artillery and air power, made the difference. Madrid dispatched three Republican divisions to the pass to assist, but they arrived too late. This front had been breached as well. The surviving defenders, like their comrades to the east, began to retreat. The only hope left for these defenders, now pulling back to the north, was to head further into the Catabrian Mountains. This mountain range starts in the east, just left of Bilbao, and runs west just past the end of Asturias. It almost touches the northern coast with its entire length, except at Oviedo, where it strangely dips south just below the city before rising back to the coast on either side, thereby offering Oviedo a shield of sorts. The Republican 54th Division, which had tried to hold back the attack from further east, was now bottled up 
either at Santander or at the port city of Santona, some ten miles to the east of Santander. Either way, these forces had their back to the wall, i.e. the Mediterranean Sea, and now either had to fight to the last or surrender. As for the Basque general staff currently holed up in Santander, they made their decision quickly, by arranging ships to take them away. Yet some of the soldiers found out about their plans, and so followed them to the docks. The despondent men, upon spotting the ships, rushed aboard, and several capsized. Eventually, the general staff made good their escape, but was forced to take away some of their men as best they could. The latter were using their guns to force their superiors to take them away. With their leaders gone, the abandoned 122nd and 136th battalions turned away from the shore and prepared their defenses. But as time ticked away, these men realized the hopelessness of their situation and did not so much man their posts as simply waited for the nationalists to come and capture them. The previous year, the soldiers of the North had shot outright many nationalist supporters, so these men knew what was waiting for them, a firing squad. Still, the hope was that they could not all be shot. Perhaps the luck of percentages would be on each individual's side. As for the Republican troops at Santona, as they were to the east of Santander, they would be facing the enemy first. So, talks were put into motion. It was agreed by Count Ciano, Mussolini's foreign minister and son-in-law, that they would surrender to the Italians, namely the Black Arrows and its leader, Colonel Farina. It was also agreed that none of those surrendering would be shot outright, and no Basque soldiers would be forced to fight for Franco. But when Franco's officers, who were traveling with the Italians, heard of this, they cried foul. The agreement had been made with a foreign government, and as such, was invalid. So, following Franco's orders, any and all Basque soldiers who were already aboard British ships, waiting to take them out of the fight, were ordered to disembark at gunpoint. As had happened before, summary trials were started, and many Basque officers and their men were lined up and shot. The people of the Basque region would long remember this betrayal. When word of this victory reached Rome, Mussolini and Count Ciano screamed themselves hoarse. They sat down and right away ordered that some of the Basque guns and flags be sent to them. It must be remembered that some in Italy wanted the Italian troops removed after the humiliation of Brijuega to the east of Madrid. As the two Italian leaders would write, I envy the French their invalids and the Germans their military museums. A flag taken from the enemy is worth more than any picture. And yet the Battle of the North was not quite over. The Republican forces who had lost the Escudo Pass had pulled back north and to the west. They were now in the mountains, and though their outlook was just as dire as their comrades, they hadn't given up yet. The fighting would go on there. As the Condor Legion had played a significant part in the victories in the North, Berlin did not waste time in demanding payment for services rendered. Right away, Krumpenier, 
the steelworkers of the Krupp family, Germany's largest armaments manufacturers, swooped down on the steel mills and factories of the Basques. The military goods that they would produce would go a long way to paying for the Luftwaffe's expenses, which meant that Franco would have to wait his turn to benefit from controlling the various factories. But he was content with this. Now that the North was almost pacified, his number of men roughly equaled what the Republicans had. And more besides, with these fresh victories, Berlin and Rome would continue to contribute to his war effort. And their weapons were superior to either what the Nationalist or Spanish Republicans had. And that's all that mattered. Meanwhile, the Basque troops, holed up in the Asturian Mountains, were still full of fight, but they knew the odds were long against them. Whenever they were located by scout planes, German or Italian bombers and fighters soon followed. The hunkered-down men were bombed, strafed, chased, and felt abandoned. Their numbers were simply not enough to hold off attacks from the east, south, and west, as nationalist troops came from beyond Oviedo. Halfway in between Santander and Oviedo, near the coast, is the El Mazuco Pass. Like any other pass, it is important because the rest of the mountain range is its own barrier. So the Basques had some 5,000 men stationed at the opening that led to the eastern Asturias. But coming hard at them was Colonel Solchaca, and his 30,000 Navarrese troops, with German and Italian air support. Though there had been clashes, the battle proper started on September 6th. The Republican troops stayed down, trying not to give the bombers anything to target, and only raised their heads and guns when the enemy troops came within proximity. When the Nationalist Navarrese 1st Brigade attacked, the Republicans allowed them to get close, and then opened up with a withering first volley. The attackers were driven back. Yet the defenders had now lost the element of surprise. Now that their location was known, the Condor Legion was asked to come in, and they did, carpet-bombing the area Franco's men had been repulsed at. So the next day, September 7th, the Nationalists came again, but this time they were met by three new battalions that had recently arrived with 24 machine guns. Again, the Navarrese were driven back, losing many men. Again, the Condor Legion was called in and spent the day bombing the general area. The next day, though, brought in a thick fog, which the Nationalists used to launch another attack. The fighting quickly became hand-to-hand as the men stumbled into each other with both sides losing many. During these last few days, the Navarrese were also attacking to the south of the pass, but their assaults there weren't any more successful for the first two days. But on September 8th, they were able to gain some two kilometers in territory. The next day, the weather cleared, which brought back the bombers. Positions were pounded, the Nationalists attacked again, but were driven back by the defenders' machine guns. This went on for two more days. When the fall came back on September 10th, the Nationalists launched another attack. This time a hill just south of the pass was taken, 
Yet as the defenders still held the higher ground, they raked Solchaka's men with their machine guns and rolled down the hill barrels full of explosives. The fighting went on like this, and each time the defenders held their own, but lost men in every contest. By September 13th, the Republicans were forced to pull back due to their loss of men. The situation to their immediate south fared little better. The defenders would be bombed, then the infantry would come and attack, which would be beaten off by machine guns. But each time, the Basques had fewer troops to contend the two fronts. On September 22nd, the defenders were exhausted and beaten down. They had achieved amazing success, but lost the heights anyway, and retreated. Back, the surviving defenders were pushed to Guillaume along the coast. The hope was to hold out until winter proper came, to buy time to regroup. But the nationalists continued to push. In October, the Navarrese from the east joined up with the forces coming from Lyon in the west. Before them was the lone holdout. The outcome was obvious. The men representing the defiance of the north were overtaken in Guillaume, the last Republican stronghold, on October 21st. For a few months beyond this point, only guerrilla resistance constituted any fight the Basque had left. Thus was the North lost to Republican Madrid. Though the overall military situation was improving for Franco, there were cracks within his support base. Having failed four times in five months to take the capital, the Germans and Italians were beginning to wonder, if only to each other, had they backed the right horse. Moreover, the Carlists, who made up a respectable percentage of Franco's fighters, had still not forgotten the nationalist leaders' reaction when they wanted to set up an officer school. Of course Franco could not tolerate such an independent body, but many of the Carlists thought that exiling their leader, Falconde, to Portugal was going a bit too far. As for the soldiers of the fascist Falange, which supported Franco, they were still not told that their leader, José Antonio Primo de Rivera, had been executed by Madrid, and there's a good chance that Franco had turned down a prisoner exchange that would have freed José Antonio. So the men of the Falange wondered where their leader was, not even thinking they needed a successor. Franco was happy with the status quo. However, this left the German ambassador, Wilhelm Fappel, to report to Berlin. Franco is a leader without a party. The Falange, a party without a leader. And yet the German ambassador did more than just report of the goings-ons of the Spanish Civil War. To his mind, the Falange seemed to be drifting to the political left, as in some of their officers were tolerant of their men who openly spoke of the state providing a better life for the people. This smacked too hard of red philosophy. And as he knew their leader would not be returning, not in this lifetime, the German encouraged Manuel Hidea to take the Falange leadership. Hidea had been a mechanic earlier in his life, but had become one of the more powerful members of the Falange, the only legal party recognized in Spain that went over to Franco. 
He was also a good friend of the secretly deceased Jose Antonio, and started to suspect foul play. Yet Franco's political instincts were twitching. Something was going on with the flange, and there was much talk between the Italian and German ambassadors. And though the two were not directly connected, Franco, in his paranoid state, believed they were. So had Berlin recall Fappel. Franco knew that Rome and Berlin were not helping him out of the goodness of their hearts. They needed their side to win. It didn't matter who was at the nationalist top. Better safe than sorry. But the talk between the two ambassadors had already borne fruit. Back on April 16th of 37, Hedeya's supporters tried to take the Falange headquarters in Salamanca, just 75 miles or 120 kilometers to the northwest of Madrid. The attackers needed to bring down the followers of Sancho de Vila, who was also seeking control. As both sides considered the military option only, shooting soon started. Two phalangists were killed. The civil royal guard, loyal to Franco, was dispatched, and they separated the two quarreling sides. Hedeya had the foresight to be far away, thus claiming ignorance. Two days later, the Flange Council was called together, as no further fighting could be tolerated because everyone feared Franco's reaction. They voted Hedeya as their new leader. Pretending to be surprised, Hedeya called on Franco to tell him of the vote, but also to assure the general of his continued loyalty. Franco, in response, aped Hitler during the early years of the Nazi party, when he would butter up a potential victim, and told Hedea that he was happy for him and welcomed him to his leadership position. But behind the Caudillo's eyes, plans were already being made to rid himself of another potential threat. This one, internal. Now that the Flange, a large part of Franco's army and support base, had a new leader, and ambitious one to be sure, it was time to reorganize the nationalists. Thus the Falange was combined with the Carlist, the Monarchist, and the other right-leaning groups into one large party, called the Falange Española Tradicionalista of the JONS, or Traditionalist Spanish Falange of the National Syndicalist Offensive Juntas, as the name implies, the Falange were on top, which bothered the Carlists less than expected, as they had never been political, comparatively. This new party's major programs were Falange in nature, which only gave Hedea even more power and prestige. The traditionalist salute was borrowed from the fascist, and their slogan was Por el Imperio Hacia Dio, or For the Empire towards God, which would please the Catholic Church. Franco was made the party's chief, and his brother-in-law, Ramon Serrano Suner, a lawyer, its new executive head. With this done, Franco was no longer just a de facto nationalist leader, but officially the leader. Anyone who criticized him was being disloyal to the entire nationalist cause, which meant they wouldn't live very long. As for Hedea, he sought to maintain his power and independence in this reshuffling by not joining the new party, 
and instead mobilized his troops. His aim had been to not lose his newfound status within the hierarchy, but he would instead lose so much more. Franco, now claiming that Hedea had set himself against the new party's leader, had the Falange leader arrested on April 25th. His sentence came quickly enough. Death. However, on Ramon's advice, the sentence was lessened to life imprisonment. No need to make a martyr out of the man and bring on more trouble. In fact, Hedea would be released in only four years, but as a political threat to Franco, he was removed. Political infighting and power grabbing was not limited to the nationalists. On the Republican side, Madrid, or at least various ministers and military officers of the capital, had been battling communist influence since Stalin decided to help the Republicans. Events there were also coming to a head. Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, Episode 113, Stalin's Gain, Largo's Loss. Last time, the Nationalists, though at great cost in human lives, had begun the end of Northern resistance. During that time, Franco had also dealt with internal resistance. However, the General had been victorious in both contests. As for the Republican government, it was attempting to balance itself on the thin line of being grateful to Stalin and the international communist Comintern, and yet not falling under communist control. In time, Stalin's agents, who were very good at their craft, would come close to achieving Moscow's aims, and yet lose the larger war. From the start, the foreign communists be they soldiers, officers, or political agents, would find standing in their way the pragmatic anarchists. What's more, the Valencia government in eastern Spain would also fiercely guard its independence. In December of 1936, Stalin met with his advisors and had a frank discussion about Spain in general and the conflict and the Communist Party in Spain specifically and about its potential future. Once this meeting was over, Stalin sent a long letter to Prime Minister Largo Caballero. The letter's tone was to the point, but self-effacing at the same time. It started off by reminding Caballero that Madrid had asked for Soviet help. Further, that Stalin had told the officers en route to Spain that they should always remember that in spite of the great solidarity which now exists between the Spanish people and the peoples of the USSR, a Soviet specialist, being a foreigner in Spain, can be really useful only if he stays strictly within the limits of an advisor, and advisor only. This was classic Stalin, seemingly pouring his heart out, being frank and earnest, but working his way to giving various agents cover for their ambitious actions and statements. The letter also said that the Soviets were only there to safeguard democracy. It must be remembered that Stalin, more or less, believed that the Soviet Republic was a democracy of sorts, 
hadn't the Russian people voted for a communist government by fighting for years against the white Russians and winning. Also, though the Soviet agents in Spain were only trying to bring about change that would attract the peasants and middle class, for without them the republican effort would be lost. In truth, what Stalin was attempting was to carve out a place for the communists, be they Spanish or foreign, as he did not need a diplomatic failure, nor to anger Hitler to the point of attacking the USSR, and to bring Russia closer to Britain and France, as they would surely need each other, as Nazi Germany only got stronger. The last thing he wanted so stated the letter, was to have the world view Spain, if the Republicans won, as a communist republic. Stalin went on to emphasize that his officers were instructed to focus only on building a disciplined army, with a single command, to develop the war capacity of the Republicans, and to unite the various political groups. That was the only way to achieve victory. Victorio Cadovia an Argentinian-Italian communist, had been sent to Spain to help make all this happen. However, Cordovia's stock, in the eyes of Madrid, would soon fall, as his influence was taken over by Boris Stepanov, who would arrive in March of 1937, a favorite of Stalin's, who was seen by the Spanish as more neutral but decisive. He certainly was the latter, as for the former he just hid his ambition better. Stepanov would report to Stalin early on that Caballero should just be the government's leader and not military executive if Madrid was to have any chance of winning. The communists started out their covert grab for power by attempting to get their own appointed to various ministries. From there, they could determine who would be given promotions or commands. But right off, the anarchists made it clear that if any communist officers tried to give orders to any of their troops, they would be met with immediate violence. So the communists then sought to control the anarchist troops through officers who were sympathetic to the communist cause, or closet communists themselves. This tactic proved successful, and by March of 1937, a report reached Stalin that of the 38 key commands of the Central Front, 27 of them were outright communists, and three more were sympathetic. Yet some of Stalin's men went too far, openly so. As we have seen, the communists were trying to get rid of General Ensencio Torado, presumably for his bad track record as a commander. But in reality, it was because of his resistance to the communists. Even the Soviet ambassador, Marcel Rosenberg, spoke up against Torado. Yet he crossed Stalin's line by getting in Largo's face, literally, and sometimes shouted orders at the government's leader. Largo, a socialist, would not only kick the man out of his office, but would declare that he would not agree to blending the socialists and communists together as Moscow wanted. Ironically, as the communists were trying to have Torado removed and shot, Rosenberg would be called back to Moscow in early 1937 and himself shot, becoming one of the many victims of Stalin's purges. So as the Civil War raged, the fight between Madrid, 
in Moscow continued and intensified. Stalin would make it clear that if their advice was not heeded, then they would have to begin to pull men out. This left Largo trying to balance appearing to accept Soviet suggestions while maintaining his independence. Yet, as the early weeks of 1937 went by, the Prime Minister found himself surrounded more and more by communists who took their orders from outside the country. Back in late 1936, the NKVD, Soviet Russia's secret police, established their own police schools, and if someone refused to join the party, they would find themselves unable to pass the final exam. Yet there were plenty of ways the Soviets secretly increased their control over many aspects of Spanish life. One of the most significant was Stalin's attempt to win over the assault guard still loyal to Madrid through secret communist agents. This would work in time, as well as the communist attempts at splitting and therefore weakening the anarchists who were tricked into backing two different leaders. Before the North was lost, there were rumors that the communists were preparing a purge not unlike what was currently happening in Soviet Russia. Alas, these rumors were not a figment of imagination. As covered, before 1937 was over, the nationalists would achieve victory in the North, but events to the East also played into Franco's hands. The trust between those in Barcelona and Madrid and those of the North and Valencia had never been strong, and with Largo fighting and losing to the communists for influence, political and literal strife came to the East, starting in April of 1937. When Luis Companies, the president of the Catalonian state, altered his cabinet in April of 1937, bringing in a member of the Unified Socialist Party of Catalonia, or PSUC, which was a pro-Stalin communist party, this caused anxiety among the POUM, or Workers' Party of Marxist Unification, a revolutionary anti-Stalinist communist party, as they had been threatened by companies previously. Sensing trouble, Juan Negrin, Madrid's finance minister sent in troops to quell any possible fighting. He did not have or ask permission of Largo, the prime minister. The troops were told to take over the Pyrenean frontier posts, namely to hold them so that sector would not become weak if internal fighting broke out. But on the way, Negrin's troops clashed with CNT labor soldiers, as they had been the one manning the forts. This quickly set off a series of political and military infighting among the labor unions, Republican troops, and Communist troops, those who backed Stalin against those who opposed his influence. As men died in the fighting, their funerals were used to start mass demonstrations that led to more fighting. Suddenly, Barcelona was on the verge of its own civil war. Without the Nationalists having to lift a finger... The erupted fighting between government forces, the pro-Stalin communist and Catalonian locals, versus the labor unions, anti-Stalin communists, and other locals. As the CNT labor soldiers had more men in the area, they quickly controlled the major roads and important cities throughout the area. Soon the assault guards, loyal to Madrid, were sent in 
to restore order. However, they were met by the bullets of the CNT. President Companies quickly agreed to meet with anyone who could help restore order, and though agreements were made, the fighting had taken on a life of its own. Soon streets were closed due to barricades. Each side had its own newspapers, claiming that their side was the victim, but soon all presses were shut down by the violence of the other side. Largo found himself embarrassed by the infighting, which only gave the communists more proof that their party needed to lead the government, and the fighting against the nationalists. Largo needed the forces of the CNT to continue the fight against Franco. However, he also needed peace, and for everyone to get along, to fight at each other's side. But now, in the East, that was not happening. So, more assault guard units were dispatched. But they never reached their objectives, as they were stopped by whomever they came into contact first. The last thing any of the Catalonians wanted were forces from Madrid coming in to take control. What currently existed was an alliance between the Republican government and Catalonia only, much like the alliance between Madrid and the North. On May 6th, another peace agreement was reached with the central government of Catalonia, proclaiming, Comrades of the government forces, back to your barracks. Comrades of the CNT, back to your unions. Comrades of the UGT and the PSUC, also to your centers. Let there be peace. But the communists, taking orders from Moscow, issued statements that kept the tension high. The idea had been to withdraw the assault guards, which no one in the area wanted anyways, which would allow the fighters to pull back and let talks begin. But the guards did not leave. Instead, they began a program of reprisal killings. Largo was made to look ineffectual. Even his guards were not listening to him. The area did begin to quiet, but this was only because of force. In the end, the communists won a greater respect by the people, as they seemed the only ones capable of restoring peace. As for the Catalonian government, it quickly set up tribunals and punished those of the labor unions. Their newspapers were suppressed, which had allowed them to respond to disloyal accusations by the communists that became more ludicrous each day. Soon, the Spanish communists became uneasy about the extreme orders coming from Moscow, but they, like Madrid, mostly gave in, as they knew their supplies of arms would quickly dry up if they did not comply. On May 15th, just two days before Largo was going to announce measures to curb communist influence in the government, Agricultural Minister Vicente Uribe, a pro-Stalin communist, demanded that Largo crack down on the anti-Stalinist communists in Barcelona and arrest their leaders. Largo, to his credit, replied that he could not, in good conscience, outlaw a working-class party that had not been proven guilty of anything. The recent infighting to the East had been the very definition of confusion. With this, Uribe and Negrin and several other ministers walked out of the government. This left the prime minister with only four anarchist ministers. Spain's president, 
Azania told Largo to carry on with the support of the anarchists and labor unions, as best he could, but they could not supply the Republican government with arms. For that, Moscow was needed. And as Stalin made it clear through his representatives that the only way Largo could have Soviet support was to give up the war ministry for the good of the war effort, but that the prime minister would not do. So, having been isolated and weakened by the infighting in the East, Largo resigned on May 17th. Stalin made his wishes known that he would like to see Negrin as the next prime minister. So, President Azania dutifully asked the minister to form a cabinet that same day. Of course, Negrin said yes, and for appearance's sake, his cabinet was full of non-communists. The Minister of Defense, the Minister of the Interior, and the Foreign Office were staffed by non-communists. However, the two lesser positions, the Minister of Education and Health and Minister of Agriculture, were held by Stalin's men. Overall, it had been an impressive, if messy, Soviet victory. And the NKVD would also continue to control the secret police. The result of all this was that Soviet military support would continue. As previously covered, next came the Battle of Brunette to the west of the capital, which was claimed as a victory for the Negrin government, which it most certainly was not. This was mostly done by the mouthpieces of the communists who were trying to bolster support for their new chosen leader. But as 1937 went on, the people in general were less supportive of Madrid as word got out that Moscow was pulling the strings. The international brigades were altered as well, as we have seen with the Americans and British taking actions to not only select their own leaders, but to rethink their tactics to ensure that many more of them would survive the next battle. It was clear to many of them by now that the Soviets were more interested in supposed victories and propaganda than saving the lives of the foreigners. Those same foreigners wrote home of their treatment, the result being that Negrin, who was hoping for more European military support, would be disappointed by London's and Paris's continued non-intervention. Going back a bit, before the Republican fall in the North, Madrid had decided on further action in the East to not only help the North, but to actively recapture Saragossa. This regional capital was the communication center of the whole Aragon Front. Thus, if it could be brought back into the Republican fold, the nationalists and their Italian allies may yet hesitate to push further west against the Basques. During late 1936 and early 37, the nationalists had concentrated what men they had in the east in the cities. That control of them was far more important than holding the vast countrysides. The Republicans believed that their enemy had chosen poorly and would use the undefended rural areas to advance on Saragossa. By August of 1937, the nationalists held the Aragon region with only the 51st, 52nd, and 105th divisions, but these men were spread across some 300 kilometers, or 186 miles of territory, and again, most of them 
were stationed in the various cities. General Pozas would be in charge of this offensive, so he set up his headquarters at Bukharulaz, some 30 miles or 48 kilometers east of Saragossa. The plan was to come at Saragossa along a 100-kilometer front between Belchite to the southeast of Saragossa and Zuera due north of the target city. As there would be seven attack points, this was hoped that the less numerous nationalist defenders would be unable to stop all attacks. Also, that bombings from the Germans and Italians would not be able to locate and bomb all seven attack lines. The 27th Division would come on the Republican far right, or northern flank. As it came closer to Saragossa, it would then turn left and help encircle the city. In the right center position, Kleber's 45th Division would march west, just south or left of the 27th. This would lead the 26th Division and a part of the 43rd Division to cover the left or southernmost flank, below the Ebro River. The main attack in the center would come from Modesto's 5th Corps, made up of Lister's 11th Division and Walter's 25th Division. Lister's 11th would have all the T-26 and BT-5 tanks that could be spared in the east. Supporting this attack from the air would be some 200 aircraft, most of what the east had in reserve. As the Republicans had the clear advantage in numbers of men, tanks, and planes, many were certain of success. This caused them to fall back on the mindset that this war was personal, and with that thinking would break a cardinal rule of warfare, ignoring the main goal and instead focusing on sweeping everything up before them. The Republican attack began on August 24th. That same day, the Nationalists were about to enter Santander to the north. Hence, one of the main reasons for this battle was moot. As General Pozas wanted the element of surprise, again a mistake, as they should have wanted the inferior enemy ahead of them to know of what was coming, and hence call for assistance, that would hopefully draw forces from the north, there was to be no pre-attack artillery bombardment. On the far-right Republican flank, the 27th Division captured Zuera around noon. No surprise there, as the city had been lightly held. Just below the 27th, Kleber moved out with his 45th Division. But upon reaching Villa Mejor de Gallego, still 6 kilometers, or 3.7 miles, from Saragossa, he stopped. Why? Because he did not possess any intelligence of what was ahead of him, between himself and the target city. On the far-left Republican flank, the 25th Division took Kodo, which was just shy of Belchite, after having fought off the determined Carlist troops there. The Republicans won, but such had been the fighting that the men were too exhausted to move out for the rest of the day. Still, the left flank was more or less secure. Meanwhile, in the center, Lister's 11th reached Fuentes de Ebro, just 10 miles or 16 kilometers from Saragossa. However, that town was not taken, as Lister's men tried to destroy each and every resistance unit anywhere near it. Their forces were soon scattered and fighting everywhere in the area. 
With this disbursement of force, the International Tank Regiment lost its infantry support. When the Nationalists counterattacked with their large guns, every BT-5 tank was lost. On Lister's left flank, the 25th Division also captured Quinto. Yet such was the surprising resistance, it did not fall until the second day. Back to Lister, as his men were scattered about, skirmishing with everyone, instead of encircling pockets of resistance and sending the majority of his force on, the 35th Division was sent in to assist Lister. However, they also scattered themselves out looking for trouble spots, hoping for some revenge killing, instead of focusing on the task at hand, namely driving on to Saragossa. With the main thrust stalled, Modesto, wanting to save his command and his reputation, refocused the fighting to take the town of Belchite on the far left flank. One, it would give him a clear-cut victory, and two, the objective was only defended by a few hundred men, though they had well-placed machine-gun positions within the city. The attack began the late morning of September 1st. Not caring about the element of surprise, artillery and air attacks were carried out before the infantry and tanks moved out. However, as the bombers had hit their targets, the buildings where the enemy machine-guns were placed, the streets were now filled with rubble. So when the tanks entered the town, their movement was limited. This left the majority of the fighting to the infantry. Machine gun nests were approached and taken out over time, but many Republican lives were lost in the process. The fighting went on for Belchite until September 6th. Only then did the Republicans hold the entire town. And with that, the offensive was over. The resistance of the Nationalists, along with the disbursement of Republican troops, gave the defenders enough time to bring in two more divisions, and their transfer did not affect the war in the North, as that was basically over. Just like at Brunette, the Republicans should have contained trouble spots and sent the rest of their men and tanks forward, but they did not. So only ten miles of territory were captured, along with several small towns. But the price the attackers paid in men and tanks was clearly not worth it. Surprisingly, the Soviets, for all their experience and professionalism, were not learning the art and science of modern warfare, as the Germans were. This would prove itself over and over in the coming years. Okay, everyone. Hello. Uh, this is uh, the Office of Mountain Cove Productions, where the magic happens. It's time for another. Whoops! There goes a the chair. It's time for another Harry's giveaway. So I've got the uh, my assistants with me. Uh, we're just going to draw a name and then pair it down from there, and we'll find a winner. So good luck to everyone who has entered. There will also be another contest for everybody, for the members and the general listen, listening audience. But this is just for you members. So who would like to draw a name first? Go ahead. Mama. Okay, you're not allowed to nominate other people. I'll do it. Okay. Okay, so the first one is Craig Stewart. All right, Craig, you're in the running. Who would like to do another one? 
kick it. There we go. Okay, it's not that hard. So you just <laughs> grab. Oh obviously, it's that hard. Michael po- Kopansky. Kopansky. I hope I. Sorry, Michael, I butchered your name. But anyway, the good news is you're in the running. What are you laughing at? <laughs> who's, whose turn is it? You? Okay, 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 go. Okay. Okay, you want that one. Okay, there you go. Stephen Stockinger. Stockinger. Okay, again, Stephen, I'm probably putting it. It might be Stefan for all I know. Okay, and I'll draw one. I won't look. All right. Edward Graver, I believe, is the name. Edward Graver. Okay, so let me dump these out over there and we'll put these back in. So I'll let the girls draw the two finalists and then the missus will draw the final, but you can't look in. You can't look in. Okay, no, you don't go anywhere. Just don't look in the bowl. Okay, so look up. Put you, oh my God. Okay. All right, so one of the two finalists is, and these are all names that I'm butchering. Sorry about that. Michael Kopansky. All right, Michael, so you're one of the finalists. And then Miss Sophie. All right, just get one, baby. There you go. All right. And the other finalist is Craig Stewart, which for some reason the wife is very excited about it. Okay. Okay. All right. All right. So without looking, hold on, let me turn these over so you can't see. Heather, pick a pick a winner for the Harry's giveaway. No, don't don't let her let her do it. You're breaking her concentration. And the winner of the Harry's giveaway is Michael Kopansky. So Michael, you will be getting an email from this. Yay! It's not, it's not me, so I don't get excited. Anyway. Yes, that's really loud. So, Michael, I will be sending you an email. I'll wait a week or two, so hopefully you can hear this and be surprised. Thank you for everyone who's entered and everyone who do you everyone who listens to the show supporting me as I seriously consider taking this thing full time and making it my only uh, gig. So I'll let you know more as I know more if the wife approves of that or not. Anyway, so thanks for listening, to everyone. Take care. Um, and my girls didn't talk during this because they both have retainers or whatever and so expand i don't know I what they call retainer. she has a retainer and they and they talk funny now so anyway thank you everyone and i will see you soon with the next regular episode to be coming out in a couple of days take care everyone goodbye bye you want to say goodbye bye goodbye goodbye, goodbye. a lot of excitement here bye